afternoon and welcome to the session. Uh, we hope that we have much to offer you on insights on boards and leadership in our nonprofit organizations and our museums. My name is Anita Durrell and I'm with Durrell Consulting Partners. Uh, we are a, an affiliate of the community of QM2, a community of consultants. And um, I'd like to introduce our panel briefly. Uh, next to me is John Durrell, my partner in Durrell Consulting Partners and QM2. Um, Bill Tramposh is with us today from the Nantucket Historical Society. Bill works with a mature organization with a board of high-level sophistication. Um, he has, uh, although he might he might question that along the way, um, as everyone does about their boards at some point. Uh, uh, but they are a dynamic group looking towards sustainable organizations and building a, a high a highly um, involved team to take them into the next generation. Uh, Karen Wiley is with the Louise Hopkins Underwood Center for the Arts in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, it's a founder-led organization with a young board that are structuring their work and stepping up to responsibilities in a really significant way. We've been impressed to be working with them as a team and uh, recognize that uh, as they're busy acquiring uh, buildings, they're also acquiring million dollar checks in ways we don't usually see. Um, so we've been very impressed with the way their board works as well. Uh, Sonny Spencer is with the Arizona Museum for Youth. This is an art museum for youth located in Mesa, Arizona. Sonny inherited a friends board that did no fundraising at all and was completely funded by the city. We know what happens in those situations. But about four years ago, five years ago, uh, three months after she arrived, she uh, found that she had lost about 70% of her budget, and that continued to escalate. So her challenge was to create a board from nothing, and she's actually done a, a really remarkable job of that. Our panelists will be offering insights, and you'll have opportunities to ask questions along the way. But I think that uh, I'd like to just tell you that each of them uh, participate in roundtables that John and I run, just so you, you know we have a long affiliation with each of these people, and uh, they are all, well, they're members of two different roundtables that we run for CEOs. So I'm, I'm going to take the role of facilitator for the session. On your table, we have handouts. There are uh, some handouts from uh, the Arizona F F Museum for Youth, from Sonny's organization. But what I want to call your attention to is the checklist for um, uh, um, board fundamentals. We... Um, we want to use that in, in the course of this uh, session so you can review it and look at what we've suggested as um, what are essential for a healthy board and start to use it to pose your own questions because we want to draw out from you. Each one of you, uh, I'm assuming, has some relationship to a nonprofit board or a museum board, whether you are running, uh, you're uh, on a board or you're a CEO um, working with a board. And um, I'm sure you've got your own stories and your own concerns, uh, your own challenges, and we want to hear about those and kind of balance those against the, uh, the work that we've been doing with um, um, people we've worked with, including the three, uh, three panelists. And we chose the panelists specifically. We've got three different kinds of boards, essentially. A board that has been around for a long time and has matured and has strong systems in place, an emerging board uh, just getting started uh, it's a very young organization and then one that is transitioning 
from a friends board that uh, was little involved in fundraising to one that is now having to step up because of cuts in city funding. So uh, with that, um, we're going to start with, Anita's going to just kind of lay out some of the generalities, uh, general concerns that we see as we, uh, as we work with boards, some of the common challenges that are faced, and then we'll start questions for the uh, panelists. I'd just like to start by saying that no one joins a board to fail, but many trustees do fail on boards. One of the biggest responsibilities of the CEO is to ensure that every board member is successful. Board members typically join to do good work and to serve purposefully on those boards. What we often see is that board members uh, who join aren't quite sure of what the work is of the board. And while the CEO waits for the board to lead. The board waits for someone to tell them what to do. And I see a lot of heads nodding. So what happens during that interim period is the board gets into trouble because they begin to create their own work. Um, often it's not the priority work. Um, often it's work they know how to do. They know how to run events, or at least they've been to events and they know what's supposed to happen. So one of the things that boards often do is focus on events which are not a terribly good way to raise money for an institution. Um, another problem we see is confusion over roles. There are appropriate roles for the board and appropriate roles for the staff. And if they're not clearly defined and not just articulated but really spelled out in writing, there is confusion about where they overlap. In a young organization where board members may be doing the work of a staff before a staff is hired, they have to transition to more professional work levels as the institution evolves. An issue with that is that sometimes if that work isn't spelled out, they don't make that transition easily. Um, they will get involved in the weeds of the work of the staff and they'll stay there. We have this unique situation, too, where we have standing committees and appoint board members to standing committees in education and personnel and collection. And what we're doing is we're inviting them to meddle in the work of the staff. Um, this is something that uh, oftentimes they get on a board, they feel that that's where they're going to be doing their work, that that's been their assignment, and that's where they're going to develop their expertise and contribute. Often those committees, those standing committees, remain fallow because there isn't really a job to do right now in personnel. You don't need a handbook. You've already got one put together. So instead, we look more to the development of task forces that can work on the strategic initiatives as laid out in the strategic plan. We look at them as short-term groups that are organized to address a specific problem and, and not be stuck in one arena. One of those arenas is the development committee, and everybody wants to be on the development committee, right? <laughs> everybody. They're just racing to be chair. Um, the problem with the development committee is that the real work of the development committee is to acknowledge, first and foremost, that the board is financially responsible. The board is responsible for the financial health of the organization, and that does not mean cutting the budget and cutting the staff. It means providing resources. So the real work of the development committee is to organize the full board to participate at some level in the development process. That includes identification. It includes education and cultivation. It includes solicitation of gifts thanking and recognizing donors. 
And it, that, that process is repeated over and over again because development is about relationships, and so we don't end our relationship when somebody makes a gift. The issue is that, that solicitation is only one small step. It is the briefest stop in that cycle. But all those other things really matter. The reason we have boards of more than three or four people, which is all you're required to have by law, is because we expect board members to bring their networks in and to open doors for the institution. That's not often said to board members. So the board members, when they're recruited, are recruited sometimes with the wrong expectations because it isn't really spelled out. We need to know everybody you know. We need you not only to have a network. I've often heard this said. Uh, we, have, we have a great new board member coming on. They know everybody in town. But no one's asked them if they plan to introduce the institution to everyone in town. Will you, will you actually give us access to your network? Will you make the calls? Will you get us in the door? Um, another thing that I find uh, consistently is that um, while an institution will focus on its mission and vision and values, all very important documents, too few institutions have a living, breathing case for support. These are all organizing documents. If you don't have a case for support, how does your board member know what to say when they go out the door? Not only what education programs do you have, but why do they matter? Who do they impact? Why are you doing this work at all? That's the language your board members need that's spelled out in the case for support, and the accompanying opportunities for support tell them how much they should ask for. Those are the, base, those are the basic foundation documents you need to send people out to do the good work of the board in helping to gain those resources. Um, I think that there's also a, a, a breakdown of that where board members need very specific talking points. And I would extend that to say, if you ask your curators, if you ask your educators, if you ask your visitor services people, what were the most important issues that you're facing right now? What are the priorities of the institution? You would get a different list of priorities from each one of them. The case for support also is a means for rallying the staff around the objectives that you hope to achieve and understanding the priorities rather than lobbying for their isolated silos. They also have contact with the board members and they're influencing them. So they're feeding into board members who come in with a, a specific area of interest that they're not going to budge from. It helps the board and the staff actually take a look at the big picture when you give them a more expansive view. So I think those are just a few of the areas that, um, that we'd like to cover today, and we're going to have our, our panelists address. Um, but I think John wants you to go ahead and have a look at the checklist now. Well, let me, let me just start. We'll start a round of questioning. So start to formulate your own question. I'm going to ask a few questions of each panelist, but then I'm going to open it up uh, and see if we can get a uh, good dialogue started. Um, actually, I have the same question for all three, and we'll start with Sunny and then just go uh, to, uh, to your right, our left. Um, thinking about, about the last couple of years, what do you see as the greatest accomplishments of your board? Um, but just as important, what challenges remain and what challenges do you see emerging for your board? Uh, Sonny Spencer O'Rourke. Good afternoon, everyone. One of the big accomplishments of the Amy Friends Board is actually developing the relationship with the city and raising close to $225,000 when they were really raising very little several years ago. 
the challenge is to continue to do both and to also recruit new members on the board. When I came on, there was about six board members that were active out of 18, and now we have 12 members that are active, which is an accomplishment in the environment we have. Karen Wiley from LUCA. Um, when I came about two, two and a half years ago, I started as a consultant, and the board was um, very divided and um, was going through some um, difficult times and starting to kind of get get a hold of things. And now they are unified. They have written an incredible mission. They know their mission. They um, still can go out and do crazy things, but I love them dearly. And um, it's amazing how that they have grasped the concept of what Luca where it's come from and what it can be and what it can be for the community. Um, the Durrells, the board trusted me because before they even hired me, I said, you need help and you need to be trained. And if you trust me, I'll write a grant and I'll bring two individuals in that can really teach this organization how to move forward. And they trusted me. And they didn't know what they were getting in for. But um, they've done well. Um, but to say that, my board last year for the first time was asked to financially support the organization and was 100% vested, the only organization in town that I can say that. I'm very proud of them. So um, we have made great steps. And because we are so young, um, it's still very difficult. And I, they get so excited. They get so excited. You know, oh, Karen, look, a new building. I'm like, oh, please, wait. <laughs> so... Um, um, but it, it, you know, it, when you're young, you face that um, operational deficit environment, and we are working through that and trying to be very smart and very studious. And um, we've got a ways to go, but we we have a great start. Hi, I'm, I'm Bill Tramposh. I'm the executive director of the Nantucket Historical Association. Uh, just a few words about the place itself. We're 30 miles off to sea in the um, off the coast of Massachusetts, uh, which that and the other states is something that Nantucketers refer to as America. Uh, and so the island is a national historic landmark. It's got over 800 buildings before the Civil War still standing, primarily because it was the height of the whaling era. Uh, it was the chief port, but uh, for many reasons got isolated from New Bedford and accessibility. So that's why through neglect, a little bit like Williamsburg, through neglect for many years, it, it stayed um, an historic treasure. We have 22 sites. Uh, and I think in answer to John's question, where, where the board has made the most progress is stepping off of the building of, of a new mothership museum, the Nantucket Whaling Museum, which was one of the earlier buildings of the, uh, the NHA, which was founded, by the way, in 1894. Um, and the new building, about four or five years old now, is is kind of a, a, a center point of 22 sites around the island, which together tell the history of Nantucket over four centuries of habitation. And so I think what the board has done with the building of that museum has set, set a standard for us to follow with all of our sites now and realizing that they need to get there our board has identified charters for every one of its committees very clearly. 
They've also, we didn't have four years ago, we didn't even have an executive committee. We had a board of 28, no executive committee. I think one of the most important changes has been to form that executive committee, which has to come out of a trust from the rest of the board that the leaders of that executive committee will be the ones who who, who can be trusted, and they've, they've accomplished that as well. So I think that as a result of those two accomplishments, charters and an executive committee, and an appreciation of what we have ahead of us to keep that standard going with the, the mothership of the Whaling Museum, uh, we have been able to embrace the notion, or see the elephant, if you will, that we have uh, 22 more sites to care for. We have to launch out on a sustainability campaign, and the figures for that are, are pretty astonishing when you think of Karen said she had you have nine sites. We have 22, and many of them 18th, 19th century. So they take care. So the board is embracing that now as a result of the fact that we do have active committees and an executive committee and help with John and um, Anita in developing a sustainability campaign has been invaluable to us. Okay, now I have some questions that get us, get us down into the actual operation, actual operation of the board. Um, by the way, we're being recorded. That's why we're stumbling around with the um, with the microphone. And as you ask questions, um, the gentleman in the back will give me a high sign. If it's not clear enough, then I will repeat your question. But we'll ask you to speak up. Um, Karen, tell us about your board meetings. Um, what's what's on the typical agenda? How do you craft the agenda? How's the board meeting run? <laughs> this is Karen. Um, when I got there, the board meetings were, um, the executive board meeting would meet at, not, I don't know, an hour before the board meeting. So it would be on Tuesday mornings. We would come in, we'd have an executive board. Um, we'd talk about everything that we had just talked about in the, in the facilities committee last week. And, and so it's like, okay, this is the third time I've heard all this. And then we turn right around, and the rest of the board comes in, and then everything was repeated again. I was like, you are really wasting my time here. And we're really wasting the board time. And I have people that are on the executive committee that are also head of facilities, et cetera. And they're saying the same thing over and over. I'm like, don't you get tired of this? You know. So um, we really needed to have a change. And um, so working with the Jarrells and working in small groups and talking to them, I said, you know, we're meeting every week, every month. And of so much preparation on the staff, as you know. So we did a resolution a year ago, last summer, and our attorney wrote it up. I love Calvin. He makes sure everything looks good and official. And we had a resolution for 12 months. For the next year, we were going to meet every other month for the board meetings, and we're going to see how it works. And so we played with that. And we, every other month, we would have our board meetings. So we'd have executive board meetings on the months that we didn't have that. We'd have time for facilities committees and task force and such to meet. And we went through that process with six board meetings. And by the summer, board members were calling me and saying, I feel so out of touch. And this is not working. And it would really work very nicely if we didn't move so fast. But we move so fast. I, I, you know, in two years, I've got, well, last year I got 
four buildings. So, I mean, that's how fast we move, and you're meeting six times the year. So what we did this summer is the executive board came together and said, we just can't do this, but we're not going to go back to what we had. And that's the lovely thing. The board is not afraid to make changes and to shift and to adjust knowing we've learned what we it's not working and now we're going to try this and that's not but let's do this so this year we're meeting every month but we meet executive board meetings on thursdays before the so we have time see the task force facility all this is working then we bring to the executive board and they're like okay this sounds good let's do this resolution let's do a little tweaking here now we're ready for the board on tuesday so it's moving and when we walk into the board it's like we've all had a hand in it my president is fabulous we are constantly talking um we prep that we work with the committee chairs with different things that need to be addressed so when we get to the board meeting we are making decisions and moving forward and it's quick, and it's timed. Everybody has times on the agenda. You have two minutes to give your report, and that's it. And I talk to those individuals before the board meeting. Now, Dean, this is what I have for, for um, development. I'm going to send you this. I'm giving you three minutes. Is that enough? And, it's t- and they're precise because they're not wasting each other's time. Um, another change that we made is that, and it's the basic stuff. You approve everything, but then you make decisions during your board meeting because all the other things is getting prepped and getting ready for that. Um, and then that's the sign-off. It's your board. And then you have your next set, so then you're moving forward. Um, my president, I always did a director's report, and that was a part of it. My president started doing the director's report. So now we have a president's report, and she's so excited. She's like, I'm doing. I'm going to. Tell, I'm going to tell them what we're doing. And in the last three months, we've done this. And she goes, but to have her validation when she gets up there, um, August, I brought her in to observe a staff meeting. She has small board group meetings, and I'm invited to observe, and to help fill in if they need facts. But. I invited her, and she sat there and watched the team work. I have a very small staff, and how they work as a team and how they assign each other to, I need you on my task force. We're going to get the and then, and Karen, can you, is, I'm like, great, go. But for her to observe that and then go back to my board and say, you have a fabulous staff. Let me tell you what's happening. Let, and it's that communication. Any way that you can get those ties. But they know, and we look at it, it's an hourglass. I have my board, I have my president, I have me, and then the staff. Everything comes between me and Carol. Nothing happens unless it goes. And we've had, we, we have problems sometimes. People will go out and do something, or a board member will get excited and maybe, maybe commit when they're not ready to. And it's that constant. And I will tell them, this is what's going on. Now, it's not your responsibility for operations. This is mine responsibility. I'll make the decision, but I want you to know. And I want to keep you informed that this is happening in a personnel area. And I'm very upfront with them about that. But it's communication. Let me just ask out in the audience, anybody have any questions concerning your board meetings? I can speak loudly. (laughs) My wish is I have committed board members. They want to be there. I, but they don't look forward to coming to meetings. Do you have some ideas about how to, you know, enliven them, to surprise them, to do something that would uh, 
make them really, uh, you know, look forward to coming to meetings? Who wants to take it? Karen, you go ahead, but anybody. Spencer, O'Rourke again. One of the things that we do is actually Museum Moments, which this is going to sound like an advertisement, but we also work with Anita and John, and we learn that in their um, sessions, and they love it. And the Museum Moments consist of everything from a letter we may have received, uh, an actual member who comes in and makes a statement, to a staff member giving a mini-report, and they get really energized, and I do it at, on purpose at the end of the meeting so they walk out really energized. Did you want... Another thing that we do is um, we always plan an educational component. It might not happen every board meeting, depending on what's happening. But one board meeting, it was like, okay, the meeting lasts 30 minutes, and then we're doing a walking tour of the theater. I had board members in heels up on the catwalk. They were so excited. They had no idea what was consisting of the theater. So I think that we're planning a hands-on where they'll actually go out and play in clay. I mean, I think that the more you can get them understanding that kind of process and maybe hands-on it helps bill I, I think that's a universal challenge isn't it to to make them exciting what we're doing trying to do it in three ways um, to have the reports taken as read unless there are questions so the reports before the meeting because otherwise the whole meeting's gone uh, it's hard getting our board uh, probably not unlike many others together for more than an hour and a half a couple of hours unless we're on retreat so make sure the papers are read in advance and make sure you underline the questions you want to ask. That's something we ask in advance. Secondly, we try to take a part of every board meeting, no matter how short, to, to highlight another staff member uh, and what that person does and what sort of successes they've had. It's not only good for the board orientation, but it's great for the staff member to see what happens during the board meetings. And the third way, fortunately, because of our sites, the third way we try to try to deal with that is to get this, the board around. The next agenda item on our board is going to be for the entire board to see what it's going to take, given the help of John and Anita here, uh, to launch a sustainability campaign to care for our properties in perpetuity. So we're going to have that meeting in one of our sites that we're restoring right now, and then the reception afterwards in a site that hardly any board member has ever seen. So that meeting will then be able to be distinguished between any other meeting they've spent in a room. Fortunately, we have, a, we have an awful board meeting room, uh, which means that we have to find other places to go. It's not very attractive to be in, so we look actively for excitement. I just want to mention from our work, Bill, there are several things that we see. One is uh, the board meeting is no place for any reports. They should all go out in advance, and they should all be on one page, and they should be bullets. If you think anybody has the opportunity to read five-page reports from each of the committees, those days are gone. It should include the action items and the next steps and who's responsible. That's exactly what you need there and not a lot more. Um, I think that that shows respect for their intelligence and it also keeps things moving in the institution. It in and of itself can create a sense of dynamism. What often happens in board meetings, and they, they do become boring, is that there isn't any action. And people don't come when there's no action and no decision. The role of the board is to be focused on the highest level decisions, not the work of the staff. So what happens is a lot of board meetings become reports on what the staff is doing. 
That's not the place for that. They need to know what's going on with the staff. They need to have some sense. But those are all features you use to motivate them. That's not the focus of the meeting. Um, the other thing is we've mentioned task forces several times. If your strategic goals are, uh, had, are attached with strategies, they should be not just strategies that uh, are the work plan for the staff, but the work plan for the board. I'll give you one example. When we started working with Karen and her group in, in uh Luca in Lubbock, Texas, um, the, one of the major concerns was they had a million dollars waiting in abeyance because they, and they couldn't access the money from this one donor until they put all the telephone wires and utility wires underground. And this had been going on for over a year, and they couldn't get it done. It turned out that there were like four utility companies that owned the wires. We're talking about one square block here, not 10 miles. But they couldn't get it done, and it was very frustrating, and the board spent a lot of time kvetching about it to no end. And we said, form a task force. Who knows anybody on the city council? Can you get a meeting within two days? By the next week, they not only had the meeting, but they had it solved, and those wires came down within the month. That's the real work of the board, because they have the influence and they're using their network. So that's just one small way that you can, you can use that kind of energy. But it also empowered that board, that one small step, that they could actually do this work, and that there was a lot more that they could do that's part of the development process, and that that's where they should be engaged. So essentially what you want to do is create a, uh, an action board, not a talking board. You want a board that doesn't sit down. It's a board that actually is on its feet. So think about your meetings that way or your, or your agendas, um, talking agendas or action agendas. Uh, if, if you're asking them to come to a talking meeting, they won't come. If you're asking them to come and do important work, make important decisions, make important assignments, they're more likely to show up. To very quickly drill down a little bit on that level, having ser- serving currently on some boards and having to cultivate some boards, how do you tactfully and uh, respectfully negotiate the discipline that's necessary to enact a consent agenda? Because when you have the city councilwoman coming in going, I was too busy and I couldn't read, so you have to give me your report now, it stalls the whole business and you're back at square one. Yeah, can I let you answer that? Sure. So Sunny does the same, so I'll let her answer. Um, fortunately, our city council member does read in advance. However, um, there has been in the past another one that didn't, and our board chair privately talked to them and said, before the next meeting you have to do this because I don't want to embarrass you in front of the rest because this is how the meetings are run, and that it takes it off of you. And I just say, you know, I think that often CEOs are reluctant to push those envelopes. But if we want people to act like grown-ups, we have to tell them what the expectations are as well. And Sunny handled that very well. I'd also say that her board... Uh, one of the biggest jobs they had to do initially was to create a stronger alliance with the city government. They did not have a real power base there. Um, They were sort of seen as stepchildren, and in fact, the previous director was not very well liked uh, by the mayor and by others in in power, so that they developed a task force to create that strategy uh, to... to, um, cultivate city government very, very uh, poignantly and um, pointedly. So let me ask, um, kind of use that as a segue to the next question for Sonny. What is expected of your board members? How do you 
you and the board go about establishing these expectations, and then how do you help them meet their expectations? Thanks, John. Well, I put on the tables our um, expectation and also a list of expectations. For example, excerpts from it, they have to attend 75% of the board meetings. Uh, When I came on board, there was not actually a requirement of giving. Now there's 2,000 in giving, which isn't a lot, but it's a beginning. Um, I actually did... Um, It says right on the board expectation. I'm sorry, I have 30. Um, I have my business card. I'll be happy to email them to anyone who hasn't got them. My apologies. Is there any extra on any of the tables? Our website, yes. Okay. And Anita also has them um, at qm2.org. You can contact us and we'll Um, And then we also have a board orientation packet. And in the board orientation packet, the other document is a table of contents. So we have, for example, the obvious um, mission and vision statement, list of board members and bios. We also have the story of our museum, our case statement, bylaws, organizational charts, budgets, um, brochures, and so forth. And so the board packet you know, looks like this, and I do have the sample. You're welcome to take a look at it. And we look at it every year, and the board executive committee decide what goes in the packet. We also look at the board expectations, and then we also have a board dashboard, which is similar to what I'm sure many of you are familiar with, with a matrix. But it has each board member's name on it, what the expectations are, and we look at it and quarterly review it, and the board actually, the chair and I, meet with a board member and talk about where they are with their expectations and what they want to do before the end of the year to meet them. And it's worked out very well. Anybody have any questions related to what you expect of your board members? Laurie? Actually, my question is more about your matrix. It yes. looks like it's from board source or museum trustee association, or did you develop this yourself? It's very similar to that. We just took that template and then changed it. And modified it. And modified it, yes. In the back, yes. Yes, I was going to ask a question. When you have board members on your board that need to retire, that's a good question. Let me ask you one back, though. Do you have board uh, terms, rotations? You don't. Okay, well, that's the way to do it, I think. Uh, we have a three-year board rotation period that we... We stagger, so we're never missing too many board members at one time. Uh, that's the natural way to do it, and I think that's the sane way to do it. That's that's a, pretty much of a hallmark of, of, of bylaws, I would say. Uh, the, the more difficult one is, is approaching somebody in the midst of their tenure, if they're not showing up or if they're perhaps not maybe managing too much, if they are managing too much rather than governing. Uh, and I, I have tended to leave that to after conversations with our trustees and governance committee and the, the president of the board for them to deal with that. Because getting back to something Anita said before, it's a, it's a bit treacherous uh, territory for the executive director to get into that. And it's not necessary. If the president can carry the ball 
and your, your committee on trustees and governance, that can move things a little along in between the, the term limits. But I've, I've worked with a lot of boards, and I find a three-year term limit renewable is a really healthy, um, really healthy policy. Oh, I'm Bill Nantucket. <laughs> We've asked them to say who they are so that the people who are going to listen to this tape, if they ever do, uh, know who's talking. Uh, this is Anita speaking. Uh, I think that uh, having policies and procedures is a way to protect uh, the CEO and the institution. And if you don't have policies and procedures like this in place, I'd suggest that you really do a study of what's out there, beg, borrow, and steal from people who've already put them together, and just reinterpret them for your board. Uh, if, you, if you're looking at accreditation uh, and don't have these kinds of policies in place, that's a good leverage to use to say, if we're going to operate as a professional organization, we need to be following these guidelines if we ever expect to apply for accreditation. That sometimes gets a board behind you and helps them understand the scope of professionalism required in a museum. Anybody else about expectations of board members? Um, I have a, a board that is from across the state. We meet twice a year from 10 to 3. They're older people. What? <laughs> <laughs> we do. It's, it's not working for you? the question exactly yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry but you know what would you like us to answer because you can have virtual conferencing and then they won't have to drive um, yeah. well regional mine's regional yeah no no ours is all over well I think I hate to say this but I think maybe more meetings uh, rather than twice a year maybe shorter, more meetings. A retreat helps a lot, too. We, we've, back, back to a question Bill asked before, how do we keep it invigorated? Every year during, just a word about Nantucket, it's 10,000 people year-round to live on the island, 50,000 in the summer. So most of our board meetings happen in the summer where half of our board are seasonal people, the other half are islanders year-round. So during that hiatus in the winter, that natural hiatus that, that we would take, we try to find a place apart where we can all meet, someplace exciting that isn't necessarily all about Nantucket, but maybe another site. Um, I think I th your question is how do you keep it, how do you keep them engaged? Well, I mean, is, if they're older, like right. Right, but they literally physically meet one another, right? Twice a year, they come together. What state? What state? Okay. Um, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> I, mean, I shot my wad on that one. So conference calls, perhaps. Um, between the two meetings, maybe, so you'd have conference calls twice between each of the two meetings. That would put them in touch. Um, part of the problem, though, is, uh, the challenge is to make it so that they want to be involved. 
If they're just happy with these two meetings and you're frustrated, then you're not doing something that they're asking, how come we can't be engaged more than twice a year? So think about, and again, moving from a listening board to an action board. Are you asking them to do and engage in strategically important activities? And if so, the demand may come for them, from them to say, we need to be in touch more often. So. Hi, it's Bill again, and, but I didn't mean to be flippant, but one, one idea, I think during the course of any year, a lot of questions come up for you probably as you lead the place that I would, I would try to think in terms of who among that group might be a good person to call out of the blue and ask advice from and slowly get them engaged because there's nothing I think more ennobling for a board member than to get a call from the executive director that says, Look, I've been thinking about this. Can I get your perspective on it? They're going to feel more likely to be part of the next meeting if you do that. And those random calls can, can go a long way. That's what I'd recommend. And you also mentioned initially that they were all old. And I thought, you know, you've said that for a reason. That, that must be part of the problem, that they're not engaged enough or they don't travel a lot. I'd suggest that you take a very active role in recruiting the new board that you need that would be much more diverse age-wise. And um, although we know that that's the work of the board, we also know if we don't feed the board names, you don't get the board you need and want to succeed. So I would take an active role in uh, discussing this with community leaders throughout the state, especially if you want statewide representation. I talk to the leaders of the, the leadership groups in those areas that are producing uh, the leaders of tomorrow and the board members of tomorrow, and I would ask them point blank, who should be on our board? Who cares enough about the work that we're doing and the communities that we live in that they'd want to play a part in this and start building a deep bench? How many of you have um, boards where you have written expectations that they sign on to? So maybe a quarter to a third of you. So for the rest of you, how do they know what they're supposed to be doing? It's really important uh, when you recruit and then as you work with board members over the course of their service that they have very clear understanding of what their job is, which means probably we would recommend create a task force of board members with you to sit down to say, what do we expect of one another? What do we expect this board to do? What's the job? Put that into a document and have every board member ascribe to it in some way. Some people actually have a, an agreement that they sign on to. This is only fair to them. If you're asking them to serve and you don't tell them what you expect them to do, um, it's not fair to them. They're, and as Anita said, they'll get into trouble. Ed. term limits, we have a board that feels very empowered by the fact that they've been on the board for a long time, and there's considerable resistance in, in certain key members to, uh, to transitioning to term limits, and we've got some that have been on there for 20 plus years, and uh, it makes it very difficult to affect that transition. I'm going to turn to Bill in a second to ask him about his... Um, I don't remember what you call it, Board Affairs Committee, Board Governance Committee, board, uh, the Committee of Trustees. 
a best practice is to make sure that you've got a committee of your board that is charged with taking care of the board and making sure that the board is healthy and effective and doing strategically important work. That is the committee that would then say to the rest of the board, um, we want to go from a listening board to a stand-up board. We want to be we want to practice best practices, and what boards are today is boards that focus on strategically important work and so forth. And that board rotation is an accepted practice, and we should be doing that. So make it a policy decision, not somebody who's been around too long, or maybe not too long. Because when you have rotation, then you also have the challenge of keeping people engaged who are really good. And there are lots of ways to do that as well through assi committee assignments and so forth. But I'm going to ask Bill to talk about how his um, committee of trustees works in making sure that the board is effective. Thanks, John. It's Ed? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think to emphasize what John has just said, uh, that there's so much literature out there right now that implores us who run what we hope will be very good institutions to use benchmarks and to, uh, to um, follow best practice. And there's, as far as I know, no literature that suggests that a board member stay forever, just the opposite. So I think there's a, there's a, great, cons a great consolation for all of us to know that we can rely on that corpus of literature from the national organizations that stresses that. Failing that, uh, people like John and Anita from the outside can bring that message and deliver it to you as well. But we have two drivers primarily at the uh, Nantucket Historical Association where we didn't uh, four years ago. Because I want to emphasize that you, this can happen pretty quickly. We did not have an executive committee, as I mentioned, which I thought was a real, uh, a real hole for us. And secondly, we didn't have active board committees. But now we do. And the two most active board committees are the executive committee and the, governance, the, board, the committee on governance and trustees. The third one, of course, is the Development Committee, which meets regularly, but let me just focus on the first two first. Those two committees are replete with people who, who, who govern by example. They show up at meetings. They do their reports on time. They talk to people of other members of the board if they're not pulling their weight. And they set their own example by giving, by showing up, and by finding friends for us. Um, uh, for me, I think the key has been just a, a, that sense of that uh, uh, mutual respect that the board president and the director should have as often as possible. And I've found that when that doesn't, when that does exist, things things follow very very smoothly. Um, both of these committees promote very clear charters to all of the other board committees, especially the governance committee. And let me just say, because I think this is where, where John wants me to emphasize here, that the trustees and governance committee has a number of charges. The first one is to always be looking for new talent, for new board members that, that make the balance right between seasonal, between year-round, between wealth and behind, between workers and so forth, and making sure that we, we cover all of our those classic boxes of, of um, uh, the grid of, of who should be on a board. Um, the second thing that this Committee of Trustees and Governance does, and I'd be very happy to send you any of these charters if you'd like. I'm at, um, 
I'm in the book, The Spelling of My Name, but it's at NHA.org. If you just write to wtramposh at NHA.org, I'll be happy to send you anything. Um, and the, the second thing is that the communicating to every new board member through the charters is something that this committee does. And they don't do that by sending the charters. They sit down individually with every board member. And that's uh, usually during orientation. And orientation is absolutely required of the boards. We didn't have it a few years ago in any formal sense. But now we've been able to offer the board an orientation at about six to eight hours, two-hour sessions. So the first year of a board's uh, board member's tenure is spent doing that. And we always, by the way, ask any board members if they or staff, if they want to join in on that orientation, that rolling orientation program, uh, we also the, this committee is also in charge of um, constant communication. That is bylaws. We've just just gotten a uh, password protected website for uh, board members because the paper is extraordinary. If every time you change something, you're sending it out, and people aren't going to read that anyway. But we now have shown the board how to use this website. This and and how to keep up with it, and we announce whenever there's a change in it. Uh, the board, the other job of this committee is evaluating the board. Um, and that's, for, at first, a self-evaluation to ask the board how they think they're doing, and then it's an evaluation by the executive committee of the board members in a, in a, in a, a friendly, cordial environment. If they're not making enough meetings, emphasize that and remind them that that's what being a board member is all about. Uh, occasionally, the role of this committee is to actually lean on a board member who's not showing up. Uh, I, I can tell you where this is most difficult if we have a board member who hasn't shown up to three or four meetings and then there's a big check in support of the annual, the annual campaign. It's kind of <laughs> hard to focus on those bylaws in that case, but nevertheless, that's a job for the governance committee as well. So those are some of the Oh, and also attendance, making sure that people are coming to the board members. Ours are a little bit more lenient than Sonny's. We're about uh, two-thirds, two, two uh, but it's important to keep people after that. So that's, that's what the Trustees and Governance Committee does, and I think the most important thing is that they all set, I think, by a good example what they mean. They're not just, not just asking people. They're doing it themselves. Okay? You bet. Uh, this is Anita speaking. Uh, I think one of the important things to remember is that uh, when you when you can't hire the consultant to come in and speak truth to the board, there are plenty of publications out there on all of these topics. And I know certainly when I was getting started as a young development director, I relied on everything I could get my hands on in print from other experts. It's a great way to uh, make copies and circulate to the board and gradually be educating them about what professionalism really means. You you can bring in the experts without having them come and talk to them. While it's not as direct or as efficient as having someone come in and really talk about reshaping the board, it's a way to start that educational process so you can open some doors to get through. Um, I also think that Bill touched on sitting down with members individually, that orientation is required. Um, orientation to the board, not to the work of the staff. 
Most orientation manuals I see are big, thick books that tell you all the work the staff does. It doesn't tell you what the expectations of the board are and how the board is going to carry them out. So be careful of what your orientation really includes. But also be mindful, as Bill said, that that face-to-face relationship building uh, is extraordinarily important. What you're doing with each of your board members is building a strong relationship so that they can build relationships for the entire institution. Um, the other thing I would like to mention is that when you're selecting people to be on these committees, you really want the right people. Um, I think you mentioned, Ed, that you have some board members that sort of are tugging in the wrong directions and have their own agendas and can be very powerful. That tail is wagging the dog. Well, make sure that when you set up one of these committees that those people are not on the committee, but the people on the committee are what Jim Collins calls his Mars group, the kind of people you would take with you if you were going to set up a new organization on Mars. Who are the people that are visionaries, forward thinkers, who and who are really frustrated themselves and ready for change? Because those are the people you're going to lose if you don't change the organization. They also then are empowered, and when they come in to talk to the board, they gain new stature, and you need them to gain new stature if they're going to start to take over and change these ways. So I'm open to questions. Look at the uh, checklist. Anything come to mind? Anything on your mind? Um, Here we go. Um, A lot of the success I I know about boards tends to have a strong chair. What if you have a very weak passive chair or even someone that's relatively disengaged? How do you deal with that? Uh, I can totally relate and feel your pain. (laughs) Um, I have a a token board chair right now. She's wonderful in many ways, but she really is passive. And so I work with other people in the executive committee, but I keep her in the loop, and I let her know I'm talking to Karen about this, and she's going to talk to the board about this. She's fine with that. She actually is happy and pleased that someone else is kind of bolstering her up, and that person will be our next board chair. But I hope... That might be helpful. And this is Sunny again. How large are your boards? Because you've got all these committees, and what we're working towards right now is, you know, we've completed the standards for excellence for nonprofits and all that stuff, and I know that what we desperately need is those working, working committees. Um, But, you know, it's slim pickings, and so are many people serving on many committees, the same people serving on many committees? I can take that one. I think you have to be really careful about your committees. Um, You need to have your basic committees, of course, your governance committee, your your board affairs. You want to have your development. We need right now a facilities committee, and I don't know if that will ever go away. But um, we work through task force. Um, For instance, I have, of course, my facilities committee. I have a lot of construction projects actually ongoing right now but we're getting ready to now finally work on the plaza Um, but the key component is the the task force that we set up and also um, something in reference to an earlier question about boards you might have a very strong board member that really wants to move forward in one way and they have a lot of clout and they've been there for a very long time Um, what I have done with the plaza because that was 11 year old master plan and now we're oh we have a million dollars I'm like yes but that was a 12 million dollar project 
and that's not a world we live in anymore. Um, so it's it's very easy for people to say, oh, well, they'll do it because they had the dream, they had the vision, they're carrying it through now. And so how do you orchestrate that? Because some people are tired because they're on other things. So what we've done is gone through, stepped back, I've made sure every single board member understands where we are now. They see where that project is, that it's falling on the facilities committee. But in that process, we are going to be identifying the steps of priority and what is phase one, phase two, phase three, or what kind of phases. And then who do we bring in for experts? We are looking at doing a performance outdoor stage. So... I have the, the, the chairperson that's on that task force, but now he's solicited Jude, who's my IT guru, um, Jim Bush, who works for Texas Tech, that has done all the theaters and stadiums and the sound systems around, te- around tech and is fabulous. Um, and then they chose one or two people, and I don't even know. So it's finding those people that have the expertise, and the thing is that they come in, they go, okay, we're going to get this, we're going to do the design, we're going to get the pricing, the numbers. We're going to tell you how it works within the system of your organization. And in three meetings, you know, and, and I took my staff person and said, Jude, you follow through. You do this information. Get with Andy, our facilities person. I don't have to be there. You meet. You make this happen. And they know how to do it because they have an assignment. They know what their f- focus is. They've met. And now they have another assignment. They've come back. They have a few days, you know, a week. What's it going to take? Now they're going to sit down with Andy and say, here are our numbers. Here are our recommendations. And then Andy has that piece. And then from our expertise, then he moves forward. So he's setting up several. So you look at who on your staff, who are the people in the community you can rely on. Have a board member. I mean, you need to have, but you've got to look outside of that. And that's also building those future board members. So essentially, you want to create a committee or a task force to get something done. And, but it doesn't always have to be just board members. You want to bring in whatever the task is, bring in the appropriate expertise from outside, as long as you've got a board member who's heading it and keeping it going. Um, let me just quickly ask, what, how many people do you have on your board? 14. 21. 28. So... We, we are often asked, how many board members should we have? Well, it depends. Um, how, many, how often should you meet? It depends. So you have to understand your own organization. And as um, I, th- I think Karen said earlier, it's okay to try something, and if it's not working, change it. I think it's important to have a, a board member leading the task force, but I think it's equally important to have other people from the community because that's where you're testing them to see if they would be good board members. That's the training ground you have, and you want to encourage them to reach out to people that will work on small projects. It's easier to call and say, will you work with us for six weeks on this project than to say, will you give us six years on the board? That's the, that's the beauty of the task force, to be laser-focused on the smallest part of the job. You're not working on a membership committee. You're working on a committee to compile a list of names, new names, that you can recruit for membership. That's all that group does. And they solicit the board for names. They have a concerted effort. They might have a certain number of names they want from every board member. They might ask staff members. And then they bring in a team that can go beyond that and build the list. That's it. So if you can keep it small and manageable, people are willing to participate. 
This is Karen. One more thing on that. You have a beginning date and an ending date. It's, the, it's not like, oh, we're going to do this, and the, oh, that was great. No, you have a beginning and ending, and then it's finished, and they've accomplished what they wanted. They bring that, and then you celebrate. Then you have another case. Say, you know, out of this, why don't we try this, or wouldn't this be cool? And then it, it's not the same set of people, but now you're beginning to build a pool to see who you bring in for the next task force. And in truth, that next task force goes to the next step in the process. I just want to say quickly that we got rid of committees that were ineffective, and we just focused on what was the work of the board that year. So we only had a couple of them, and they were task force. So about that, just a follow-up question. So you got rid of the standing committees. They're still in your bylaws, but you just didn't – they weren't active. Yes. Okay. We have five standing committees, and many board members are on a couple. Uh, they're all chaired by board members, but as Anita suggested, there are community members, too, for various reasons mentioned. Um, a, a story, though, uh, because if, when you have the right committees, I think, and when you have a staff liaison, if you, you can afford that to work with the committees, <laughs> I, take it, I take it no. Uh, so you've got to watch out for the number of committees you have. We're fortunate to have five and five staff liaisons. The president of the board and I go to every one of the committee meetings. But the liaison is the one who makes sure the minutes are done, makes sure the agendas get out, makes sure that everything is running smoothly, makes sure the meeting starts on time. It's a lot of time wasted in that, that arena. Now, just a story, very quick story. Four and a half years ago, um, we didn't have the committees. We didn't have an active committee structure or an executive committee. And my, my first job when I went to Nantucket was to put together a proposal for how we care for our sites and interpret them in perpetuity. So I wrote a report working with staff and community members and the random board members, and I came up with, with, a, with a proposal called Four Sites, or Best Four Sites, Four Centuries Over Time. Uh, the bill for that, including endowment, including new interpretations, including conservation costs, everything, was about $25 million dollars. And when I introduced that to the board, which wasn't having committee meetings or didn't have an executive committee, uh, the board president, who asked me to do this project, looked at me and he said, it was a feeling of shock and awe. There was quiet in the hall when I said that because it was way beyond what they expected we'd have to do. But that was a fact. After four years of board committees and active board committees and property and development and executive and so forth, we have just gone at it again. With John and Anita's help, we've gone at it again. And lo and behold, the price tag is $25 million, and the board gets it. They totally get it. So four years of those committee meetings churning over, being very active, their standing committees, it's really paid off. And that's a before and after that I think stresses, for me anyway, the value of, of active committees. Larry, in the back. in a previous organization is the executive committee was very active and in effect uh, uh, disenfranchised the rest of the board. So at my current organization, we don't have an executive committee. It all goes to the, to the board directly. So how, 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 do you, how does an executive committee... So how do you guard against uh, an executive committee that disenfranchises the board by taking all the decisions themselves? 
Larry, we actually don't have set meetings. We just meet when we need to, and we decide that. And then what happens is we make sure whatever is talked about in that meeting is discussed at the board, too, so nobody feels out of the loop. But I utilize the executive committee to sound off things. You know, is let's do a reality, reality check on this particular idea, or is this going to work with the board? So it's done more that way, and it's worked out pretty well. They don't feel disenfranchised. That's Sunny again. I was just going to say, I'm going to ask Karen to comment on this because they, their executive committee was initially meeting, making most of the decisions coming into the board and rubber stamping them, and they've really made some significant changes there I think she can address. Okay. Boy, we fly by the seat of our pants a lot of the times. Um, but I think with my executive committee, there are in-depth conversations. We have a really great mix. I have my CPA. I have my attorney. I, I mean, I, I have a good blend that happens at the top. So if there's more critical discussion in some ways, if, you know, how do we present this to the entire board? Are we making sure that we are covering the governance issues that we want to involve the entire board? How best do we present this and not waste everyone's time? And, and, and I think it's a lot clearer because we too send everything out in advance. The board needs to, we used to send it out like, you know, minutes from the last meeting the week before. Now we're, as soon as the meeting's over, our goal is to have them written and out because there's charges in those minutes of what you need to have done before, you know. So now we're trying to be more proactive. That executive board helps me to hone and tweak and magnify the areas that we really need to investigate with the entire board where do i need to spend my time because i will have i will set small groups up and just say come at 8 30 in the morning or at lunch or 4 30 in the evening and i will spend an hour and go through this process but that executive board helps me know where do we need to make sure everyone's on the same page and get everyone brought up. So in a lot of ways, I use them as my checks and balances as well. That's great. Other questions? Um, what we see oftentimes uh, that needs to happen is that the executive committee really only has to be called when there are issues that the full board can't handle. Um, so you do not have to have a, a repeat of the executive committee meeting at the board meeting, which is often what you have. Your executive committee is there to make the decisions when the full board cannot do it. But they don't, they don't have a pre-board meeting and then go and fill in the board. Again, it's a waste of everyone's time. Uh, if there are issues that, they, that need to be addressed, then they should be convened. But it shouldn't be like a regular meeting unless they have very specific work or there's a particular project. Other questions? In the back. I mean, one of the um, kind of observations is that 
boards need to attend to being good boards. And there are a lot of boards who think they can just go on autopilot, and they don't really want to change, and the way they're doing, doing things is okay. So somehow, as the CEO, you've got to make it um, obvious that they're, just like an organization needs to improve, and nobody does it perfectly. And you're constantly working to get better programming and better exhibits and better staff meetings and so forth. The board has to understand that that's the, the, the path to success, the path to sustainability, the path to relevance for your institutions is by getting better. And we don't get it right the first time. And if you can get, that's one piece. The other piece, it doesn't have to hurt. There are processes involved that make it possible for boards to improve over time. And so if you can set that up, and there are probably two or three board members on your board who would be willing to go along with that, even if there are a number of people who don't want to change. To build that coalition and to get the process started is really important. Uh, we had another question over here. Yeah, I was wondering if you had any recommendations on how to keep board members engaged after they leave the board? It seems like after spending years on the board, then because we have term limits, they go off. There should be some way to capture that, that, that training you put into them for, for the future. Yeah, Bill, uh, we, we do a couple of things there. We have a committee, we have a group of continuing relations, people who have been on the board, and we meet with them every summer and have a better, better part of a day gathering with them to bring them up to date and show them a special program at the museum. The other thing we do is a monthly, uh, we used to do it monthly, we do it less often now, about every other month, what I call progress on the plan, the board's strategic plan, has, has, in our case, has four tenets to it. And we just bring the board, every department head is required to put together at the end of every month an accounting of what it is we've done to progress that plan. We send that to current board members and all past board members as well. And, we, and they, they like that. They think that's really helpful. And the third way is a point Anita made before is we keep them involved in the committees and we don't want to lose them because you're exactly right. They are such a valuable resource that those are three ways that we've, we've identified to keep them engaged. Come back sometime. Absolutely. And the best of them will rise and they'll be invited back. Exactly. Yep. Just one quick thing. That works very well with your task force as well because you have a board member that's tired. They've done a great job. But you can come back and say, would you serve on this task force? It's like two months or three weeks and it, it keeps them engaged and then I also use them to will you mentor my new board member that came on many times as the person they recommended and so they can work on this task force with that board new board member and kind of mentor them and it gives them that ownership as well that they'll continue I just agree with what has been said, and we actually, our founder is still involved on the board and will soon be going into a group of helping, but call, I call on that person whenever there's a situation like talking with the mayor or some of the council members that relates back to historical issues, and that helps too. 
And I know he's been a great source of advice for Sonny as well. And like Bill suggested, calling on these people that have expertise and asking their advice is, is flattering to them. But it also is very helpful to you because they have valuable perspectives. I think there's one uh, caveat, though, in this discussion, and that is that I would not create a separate emeritus alumni committee or council. You have one board. You have one board, and you should only have one board. It's important for them to have the stature and to know that they're responsible for the institution and for its well-being and not to start divvying it up. Okay, I have one final question for you. I'm looking at the checklist. Number 17, beyond their own giving, all members of our board are engaged in the development process. How many of you can say that every one of your board members is engaged in helping to raise money for the organization? Wow. <laughs> they haven't had a chance to have bad habits. So Ruth Ann says, how's that? That's really striking to me that we didn't get enough uh, hands raised. Because when you get down to it, that's a fundamental responsibility of any board is to make sure that the organization is financially he healthy. And if they just interpret that as making sure that the budget is balanced and not that you've got the resources you need to, um, to carry out the mission, uh, then they're not doing their job. So there are lots of ways that you can work towards that. I was just wondering, I almost asked this before, does any of you use like a contract with board members? Is there something that, or a position description that they sign? Yes, yes. Um, yes. Yeah, can we have a the charters they and the job of the, the board member they sign it and it seems like yeah. just only yeah that. That's right. Uh, but the fundraising, the fundraising question is a really, really good one because I was on an accreditation visit recently and I noticed that the museum had required their board had required a hundred and fifty thousand dollar gift annually from all of the board members, not individually, the whole board together needed to contribute 150000 to the museum, which I thought was pretty enticing but not really very attractive beyond that. It was um, because I think the better way to do it is by educating the board members about what the needs are. And uh, Anita, when she came, she took a look at the, the whaling museum that was built on Nantucket, and she said, well, this is nice. It's new. It doesn't give the look that you need money. So we've ended up having to work a lot with various board members to prove that we do need the money, to put it in the uh, charter, raising money as part of the job of a board member, either directly or getting it somehow or helping introduce us to people. who. So every board member can do one of those. And um, I have been impressed over the years of how often you have to repeat that one part of any charter is the raising of money because it's the thing few, the fewest people really want to get involved in, as Anita said at the beginning. I think a couple years ago I started asking this question, and, um, you know, what do you need more than anything? What does your institution need more than anything? Is it money? No, it's not for you, but for, for most of you. Do you need money? Do you have all the staff you need? Have you had any staff cuts? You need money. You can't do this job without the resources. That's why you have these large boards. And Oftentimes, if you look at the strategic plan, even though that's your, your top priority, it's not the top priority in the strategic plan. So if the board is there to work on the strategic plan and it's not your top priority and that's what you need to hum, 
then you need to go back to that and say, we need to make some adjustments to this strategic framework and create more compelling, uh, a more compelling statement about what our goals really are. There are ways to do this with a board to give it to them, and you can actually form a task force that is charged with public speaking because part of what they're supposed to do is educate and cultivate. You can have one task force identify all the groups in the, within a two-hour radius that you want to go and, and talk to, and then you can assign board members to go to at least one a year. It's not a big deal. Uh, not every board member is going to ask for money. Not every board member is going to be a good public speaker. But there's a role in that development process for everyone. If your board is, has never asked for money, then I'd engage them in a thankathon. I'd assign them every month to have at least five donors to call and thank. Just thank them for their gift. It's something that starts to educate them about the power of donations and the power of philanthropy, that people put their money behind the things that they value, and they'll start to hear things that will motivate them more as board members. There are a variety of techniques you can use to engage your board in that development process, and using something like the development dashboard also gives you the opportunity to credit them for making that kind of telephone call, because every contact they make is building a relationship for you and for the institution. Okay, we've come up on our time, uh, so. I just wanted to ask real quickly, your comment about every board member being a donor, uh, how do you determine the appropriate amount of money? I've been in discussions about this. Before. So quickly, um, you don't determine, the board determines. Right. So there's a task force set up. Um, generally what we see is that there are two fundamental statements. It has to be a significant gift. And we like to see it stated that it's within their top three philanthropic priorities, so they know where to measure this against their other work. Um, but as boards grow and mature and get more confident in themselves and, and more um, accepting of this responsibility, we see that they get the courage to say, well, we're going to set a minimum amount. And the minimum is give or get so that it's not that you only want to attract wealthy board members. What you want to attract is people who are committed to what you're doing and are committed to their responsibility for making sure you have the resources for what you're doing. And we've had, we have many stories to tell about um, uh, board members who are not wealthy who are able to go out and get the money uh, because of their commitment. So that, but it's a process. You don't have to start with a, a dollar amount right away. And then we've got some board mem some uh, CEOs who've really ratcheted it up. We have one board member who probably about three or four years ago, it was a $1,000 minimum. It's now a $10,000 minimum um, because she's got a board that is really seeing the, the value of what they're doing. Um, we're um, one thing I think is important to do is to look at your average board gifts. Add them all up and give an average because when I go on a board, if somebody asks me to be on the board, I need to know what the financial commitment is going to be. I think it's only fair to tell someone what you expect in money. But you also need to know what the average gift is because you don't want to be giving the bare minimum. So I would actually start by presenting to the board the average gift. You've probably got somebody who's making a much bigger gift that ratchets that number up. And so when you have that conversation, it puts it in a completely different framework. Okay, I urge you to take the check checklist home. If you're a CEO, meet with your board president and go over it. If you're on a board, bring it to your CEO and have them go over it. Uh, but start consciously improving your boards. Thank you. Thanks to everybody here.
And oh, here's a.